Well, good evening, all. Grace and peace. Steve Brooks, Kurt Borden, welcome to a Wednesday night Bible study. If you're here in the room or you're joining us online, we are so glad uh, that you're here. We're looking forward to our time together. Uh, whenever I was in uh, high school, junior high and high school, of course, I played football, and I probably heard it a hundred times. Brooks, use your head. Or, Brooks, think, think. It's like the stupidest thing a coach could say. I mean, think about it for a second. So you, 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 you've uh, spent all this time in practice learning the plays, learning what to do. And you're never going full speed in practice. You never have the cheerleaders looking over at you uh, during practice or the band playing. Or so there's all this other stimuli that have coming your way uh, whenever you actually get in the game. It's all of these things that cause you to lose your mind, right? And, and so think about that in your life period. Your life with God, with your spouse, with your family. When are those moments that you need to use your head and something just doesn't go quite right? You know, there's pressures. There are there are competing voices that try to squeeze out the right voice and give us the wrong voice. And that is what a book like Colossians is intended to be. To help us to think deeply. To think rightly about our life with God and our life with each other. Because there are plenty of voices, believe me that will try to tell you how you were made to live. And they're wrong. So it's our hope that as you walked in the door, I sense a lot of energy in the room tonight. Uh, hope that uh, translates to a lot of expectation of what uh, God may do uh, in, our, in our lives uh, during the study as we uh, study together and then walk out into that world that's going to be loud and try to get us distracted. But I have this icon up here, and we're going to talk about it more uh, during our study. But on the back of it, it was give, this was given to me as a gift. On the back of it, it has a quote from uh, one of my favorite professors at seminary, Bob Mulholland. You've heard us talk about him before. And he says this about what we're doing right here tonight as we open the Bible together. It says, we stand before Scripture, and it opens up before us. It addresses us. It draws us into that order of being that is shaped by the word. And may that be for us tonight. May we be shaped by the word of God. We're going to get into some uh, stuff tonight in uh, the first chapter of Colossians that has a lot of echoes of Psalm 8 in it. And so we're going to pray Psalm 8 together as we prepare to open our hearts to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, 
you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them, You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and you put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, we need to throw out a bit of a disclaimer tonight. This can be a little bit dangerous in what we're going to attempt. Steve did a good job of warning us there are lots of voices and people have lots of opinions about Jesus, who he was, who he wasn't, what he taught. And to a certain degree, I, I think for our discussion tonight, we sort of have our walls, and we're going to try to rely on Scripture as to the definition of who Jesus was. But one of the things we have to appreciate is even in this single source, we have a variety of answers to that question. I, in my mind, think of it as hemp rope. You know how hemp rope has been sort of twined together from other strands? Jesus didn't just show up one day and say, hey, gang, guess what? I'm here. I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. It's going to be cool. Let's go with me. Uh, God doesn't work that way. God develops people. He develops ideas. He developed a family that he turned into a nation that he sent into exile and then redeveloped as a nation, all the while teaching them that there would be one that would come, the Shiloh, if you remember way back in Genesis, one that would come and give them the ultimate answer. So there really had been thousands of years of development as to what the Messiah would be, who we would be. And then we get to the New Testament, and they'll throw this phrase out to us, in the fullness of time. And they say in Greek, the kairos, which is a word that doesn't translate well. When everything is perfect in terms of timing, the right moment, Jesus comes. So we look at the first century carefully. We look at the, the cultural influences, the philosophical influences, the nature of the Roman Empire. You know, we talked about Socrates and, and some of the other philosophers that had shaped the world. There's lots of strands, lots of thinkings of, of who the Messiah was. And sometimes, you know, we just get on our high horse and we dismiss. Ah, the Jews thought he was a warrior king. They were wrong. Well, It's more complicated than that. They certainly saw him as the ultimate teacher, that he would be a rabbi unlike any other rabbi before. And a lot of times you have to grow as a Christian before you appreciate that. He is masterful in not only what he teaches, but how he teaches. In many ways, he should become our rabbi in life, to become the one that helps us fit our yoke our interpretation of the Old Testament, interpretation of Torah, so that we know how to live from day to day. 
So that's one huge strand. There's another huge strand that says he is the Seha Elohim. He is the Lamb of God. From the very beginning in Genesis, when Abraham is taking Isaac up to the mountain, God has said, sacrifice your son. Abraham will say this phrase, God will provide the lamb. And so the Jews started looking for this say, this lamb, that would be the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham, because it was about a son and it was about a lamb. God expands on that, and he comes up with the Passover lamb, the lamb that saved Israel from bondage in Egypt, ensured that the angel of death passed over them. And so this lamb idea is being built and built. So reformists, priests, like John the Baptist, are running around saying, make way, make straight the way of the the Lord. Um, I... He will say, I have beheld the Lamb of God. So he's picking up on that strain. You'll see Paul do that tonight as well. That Jesus isn't just a teacher, but he in a sense is this cosmic element of God that changes all of reality. Now why I say this is dangerous is because when I start to untangle all of these threads, there's a risk they they don't go back together right. And at the end of the night, I want you to see Jesus as a combination of all the things that we're going to talk about. So we have the the great teacher. We have the lamb. We also have the deliverer, the goel. Uh, This is the redeemer of Israel. This is the one who is going to make it right for God's promises. And this is where the Jews sometimes think of a a physical kingdom, a, a, a millennial kingdom, or something like that. So again, all of these factors are in here. So how does Paul know what he's going to tell us tonight? When I was a little boy, I thought God just got on the phone and talked to the people in the Bible. Tonight, I want you to write chapter 2, okay? Um, Let's begin. But it didn't work that way. Again, God can do that, and he does on occasion scripture, you know, the Ten Commandments, other things, he dictated, but... He does not do that in the case of Paul's letter. Paul will tell us when God dictates to him. So what we're going to watch Paul do is take, is act like a rabbi, frankly. He's going to take some of these strains of Jewish thought that he's learned from Scripture. He's going to take his encounter, his relationship with God, and he's even going to take a little bit of the philosophy, the understandings. John started this, uh, the, the disciple John, when he called Jesus the Logos, the Word. And that's, you know, drilled into us. But what does that mean, that in the beginning was the Word? Uh, (laughs) Jews would have been like, what? I've read a lot of scripture. I know what the Word of God is, but what is is Jesus as the Word? Logos is... The Holy Grail, the philosophical cornerstone of much of Greek philosophy. It is this idea that there is a perfect expression of all things. And there is a perfect expression of God. It's not, remember we talked about, there was a cynicism that really had developed in the first and second century in most of the Greco-Roman world, a cynicism about their gods. They didn't believe that Hercules, Zeus, Jupiter, Aphrodite nonsense anymore. Not really. It's fun for the kids, but... uh, 
is a technical term. Um, they, they didn't really hold to that. But this notion of finding the original purpose for all things, being able to discover what is perfect spirituality, what is perfect humanity, what is perfect reason. So all of these ideas are concentrated in the search for the logos. So when John drops this bombshell and says, in the beginning was the word, then Greeks that had no deep understanding a lot of times of Torah, say, oh, well, I understand that. So Paul is going to take the rope that he inherited and he's going to add some more layers of his relationship, his understanding of the world. It makes it complex. But let's be honest. You can't have a visitation from God and have him teach us, instruct us, and it be just as simple as he is my savior, he is my deliverer, he's, he's lots of things. So tonight, we're going to pull some strands here. We're not trying to destroy anything, just show you maybe three dimensions or or four dimensions of of Jesus' existence. So with that long introduction, let's get into it. Chapter 1. We've been at this three weeks, Steve. We got to hurry. We're in chapter 1. Man, we got through Ezekiel chapters in in a week. So getting slow, but... This is thick going, and we don't want to run through it. So let's pick up a little repeat, verse 11. So this is chapter 1, verse 11. Paul is encouraging the church, praying for them. He tells us, We also pray that you will be strengthened with the glorious power so that you will have all the patience and endurance you need. Again, Paul is saying volumes about what he doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray for deliverance from the Roman persecution. He doesn't say that your bank accounts will run over, that your fields will be full. You're going to need patience and you're going to need endurance. Yay, right? Because that's like the exact opposite of what we're often told about following Jesus, is that following Jesus, your life is going to get better. And what he's saying to the Colossians here, look out. Because when you allow the truth of the gospel to truly captivate your heart, the people that are around you that saw you in another way are not going to like it. Will you stay the course? Will you stay true uh, to following in the ways of Jesus? Or will you abandon it because of the pressure that's coming? Endurance and patience. So maybe he realizes what he just said. You know, Can you imagine saying to a new parent, you need endurance to get through this. This would be the hardest years of your life. What? But in the next breath you say, may you be filled with joy. And there is an overwhelming sense of joy, I think, as we leave tonight, if, as we really get into who Jesus was, who Jesus is, who Jesus is trying to be in our lives. We have all that we need. We really do. And it's, he's on our side. Uh, there, there is hope in all the evil that we face. And we'll get why we believe that. But he tells us, always thanking the Father who has enabled you to share the inheritance that belongs to God's people. So this is a major thread here. And as much as we can, kind of switch off your Sunday school heads here. You know, the, we, we learn Christian terms, 
but sometimes we learn their Christian terms, and we don't necessarily learn their definitions. So what is it for him to say, the Father? We're going to be talking about Jesus. So Jesus has a Father who obviously is God. This kind of language, again, is going to resonate very strongly with Jews because, in a sense, they have been in covenant with this Father since the beginning. And what's the inheritance that we're going to get? Again, it's one of those Christian terms, but what do we get when Jesus dies? Do do we get the deed to the farm in uh, Nazareth? I mean, what inheritance do we get? Don't say heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Forgiveness without more sacrifice, right? Yeah? Keep keep talking. I like this. This is good. How does that work? Right? If you can't hear, so we're we're children of God, and we have sort of rights and responsibilities. So do we become gods? No. It's... But what we're doing, and, and everybody's doing excellent. This is wonderful. What we're doing is we're picking up threads of what we know about Jesus. And that's what we should do. But we need to continue to wrap them all together. On the one hand, we do kind of look at this as a cosmic kind of thing. He will provide heaven. He will provide salvation. He will provide this eternal meaning for us. So there is a, a bigger thing going on than just our world. But there's also elements that are going on in our world. Did God promise Israel physical inheritance? I mean, what was the deal with Abraham? Yeah, the promised land. For them, it's not all up in your head, and we're going to be going back and forth. The answer to this is in the middle. And Paul's whole letter, we we struggle. He'll be pulled in one direction, he'll be pulled in the other direction. And that's what I want you to feel, that we, we have those tensions. The answer is in the middle. The answer is not to be totally Jewish, not to be totally Greek, not to be totally old, not to be totally new. It's this living presence of the Spirit. So there was a physical promise for the promised land. It was dirt. You could see it. You could touch it. Paul is playing on that. He is building it up. There is a physical place, a kingdom for us here. Again, the Jews will say, I understand. I am part of um, the Amsagula, the chosen people, the, the chosen nation. And he will turn around and say that, that belong to God's holy people. And this is where Paul is Paul. The Jews are tracking here. All right, you're telling me promised land, you're telling me holy people. And then he flips it. Who live in the light, for he has rescued us from the one who rules in the kingdom of darkness. And he has brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. So there's this both and conversation going on. You will be inheritors of the covenant, but the covenant has expanded. It's not just physical land we're talking about anymore. It's about defeating who? The devil. 
darkness in our world. So that cosmic salvation thread you were grabbing, perfect. I mean, Paul would, you know, clap for that. There, there is sort of the whole of humanity on the scales here. Mm-hmm. And Paul's saying, we're, we're changing that. The promised land is now a kingdom. It's a place that we're going to exist forever, for all being. It's, it's been so much more. Now, God loves to do this. Abraham wanted a son, wanted a son by Sarah. That was the agreement. That was the contract signed. What did he actually get? He got a son, yeah. Unfortunately, the son was kind of a dud. I mean, really, of all of Scripture, Isaac is a dunce. But anyway, he didn't ask for a smart kid. He just asked for a kid, so, or son. Um, that's, that's a different Bible study. He got a promise. He got this incredible blessing from God. I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. And if you ever doubt that, look in Scripture of the people that ended up messing with Abraham and his family and his descendants and what happened to them. Look at modern history. Let me tell you, as a German, don't mess with the Jews. Not a good thing. Doesn't go well, okay? Just, yeah, go pick on somebody else, all right? No, I'm not kidding. But um, there's this, this ceiling of a relationship that God creates with Abraham that creates this world-changing religion that creates this nation, that creates a whole understanding of how to live. So we started with one little grain that God says, all right, this is what you want? Great, I'll give you that, and I'm going to give you so much more. And Paul seems to be going in that same direction. Jesus wasn't just a teacher that came to give us instruction about the law. He was that. But what he's doing is making the promised land something cosmic. He's making the promised land a kingdom that will save all of us Jew and Gentile alike. So again, this is a perfect combination. We started very Jewish, we got very Greek, and it's been wound together into something new that we can call Christian. Yep. So ponder something. Um, We are quick to say things in church about the kingdom of God. Uh, We pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh, Jesus will say things like, uh, the kingdom of God is not to be observed, but the kingdom of God is where? Within. So he, meet, he mentions the kingdom in verse 12 and b- verse uh, 13. And I just want you to circle both of those. So let me read verse 13 from my translation. Uh, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and... And I think a better translation here is transferred. So there is this movement. He has transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And just as Pastor Kurt has been saying, for Paul to talk about the kingdom, you upload all of this stuff from the Old Testament, right? And so there's five things I want you to remember from now on. Get out your phone, write it down. Whenever you talk about the kingdom of God, There are things that stay the same, and there are things that expand. Number one, y'all know who Josh Prey is? Anybody know who Josh Prey is? He's a comedian. He's great. He always does five things. Number one, to be in a kingdom, 
means you have a king. Right? And our king is Jesus. It is the Trinity, in essence. He is our king. Number one, this king rules. He has a rule. He actually has, he has actually rules over people. And this verse is so helpful to remind us how he rules. He rules by dying and by redeeming his people. Right? He doesn't rule like the Romans do. Right? But he rules by redeeming his people. And it says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 14. There you go. And that relationship, that's the second part of the ruling piece, Tom, is that he rules by actually governing us. Which leads to the next part. Well, in a kingdom, you have to have a king, you have to have a rule, and you have to have people. That's number three. And the people who reach out to God through his son, uh, who have faith in his rule, those are his people. And then, number four, y'all got it? You got to have a king, you got to have a rule, you got to have a people. And number four, you have to have a way, a will, a teaching, or a law. We're kind of eh about law, but it's the same thing as God's way. And that's how he continues to govern as he redeems us, that there is this way that God has made us to live and to be in the world. And when we reach out to God through Jesus, that that we get captivated and caught up in that way. If the redeeming part is us being justified, the way part is us being sanctified. Fair enough, Kurt? Mm -hmm. And then, number five, goes back to this inheritance that Kurt has been talking about. In a kingdom, you have to actually have a land. There has to be land uh, for the people in the kingdom to actually take up space. Paul, he's writing this from where, remember? In prison in Ephesus, most likely. How far away is that from the promised land? It's a ways away, right? And so it's like this this kingdom is growing and is expanding and is taking up space that wherever the followers of God who have claimed Jesus as their Savior and Lord, their King, that is where the kingdom of God is. It is within the followers of Jesus. And that kingdom expands as we uh, continue uh, to allow it to grow in us and as we share it with others. But that is this kingdom that God is making through his son. What are your thoughts, your questions about that? Five things. Number one, got to have a king. Number two, the king rules. And he rules through redeeming and through governing. Got to have a people. Number three, four, you've got to have a will, a teaching, a way, a law in which we follow. Upload the Sermon on the Mount there. Upload uh, the, uh, the Ten Commandments there. 
upload all of scripture. And number five, you got to have a, a uh, land or it changes. It's where, where the people of God embody God's way in the world. That help? Okay. <laughs> now we're jumping in the deep end. Look at verse 15. Christ, so the Greek word for Messiah, Messiah is the visible image of the invisible God. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they, they use the word icon for visible image. So, of course, this excites uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church quite a bit, um, that they, uh, they literally make icons. But where did Jesus come from? So how was he born in Bethlehem? What, what is Jesus? So he was born in a manger. So if he's born in a manger, how could he have been in heaven? These are the kind of fundamental questions Paul has to suss out for folks. Did Jesus come into being when he was born in Bethlehem? No. We're, we're so sure of this. Um, and, and you're right. So how come we never mentioned Jesus before? How come when we gave his prophetic name, it was Emmanuel? How come the first time God mentioned Messiah, he called it Shiloh? Why did we just get Jesus? It was what? Was it human yet? So what does Paul say? And look very carefully here. Who is the image of God? Christ. So we're going to... We're going to rip apart threads, and I want them all to end up together tonight. But <laughs> there is a real person that was born, uh, Jesus bar Joseph, right? About 3 BC, give or take a year. So there was a physical human, absolute human form. But the soul of that human was God and had always been God. Paul is trying to, again, work out for Jews and, and Greeks here, how all this really worked out, how there was a person, but there was also a God before. Now, we all know the God of the Old Testament is what? God? Yeah? Just, just for my own sanity, what, what's his name? Yahweh. Very good, yeah. So the name of God, Yahweh, has always existed. Is the God of the Old Testament nice? <laughs> What's your definition of nice? <laughs> Is he like Jesus? Mm -hmm. Paul would absolutely disagree with you. He's trying to show this group, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Everything that you have thought and sought about God, you now see in a visible form in Jesus. There is not a mean father and a nice son. They are fundamentally the same God. Now, we have to be careful because we, we get into Trinitarian language very quick, which is a structure we invented. It's not biblical, but this three parts or three persons that make up one whole, 
to help us explain what Paul's trying to do here. Um, what, you want to explain that? <laughs> no, I'm just saying. Oh, okay. I'm just trying to say, hey. <laughs> so, I, I, I hit a nerve there. Let, let, let's keep going. He existed, so the Messiah existed before God made anything at all and is supreme over all of creation. Christ is the one through whom God created everything in heaven and on earth. So what is, what is the Messiah? He is God. And this idea of a suffering servant, of love overcoming, of a deliverer, of a great teacher, all of these threads have been part of who God is fundamentally since the beginning. You see what Paul's trying to do here? He's trying to separate out. There was the old guy, and then we got the new guy. And Paul's saying, forget that. Jesus is God. Exactly. Um, Sort of a channel to show us what's up above. So the whole level of human existence, why there's evil, why we struggle, why... It hurts so much. Paul's trying to say Jesus is God's answer to that. That when you suffer, you have a choice. You can suffer like Jesus and bring life and love and something greater, or you can become bitter and angry like the king of darkness, Lucifer, and just try to destroy around you. Jesus has always been what it is all about. That's horribly cliche, but... So I'm getting a lot of what looks at me here. Well, ponder put, put this for a second. Um, like this whole this whole tension about it, it seems as if on the surface that the the character of the God of the Old Testament is different than the character of Jesus. Now, whenever I whenever I who am I describing when I I say he is uh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. God. That is how God revealed himself to the Israelites and said, hey, this is who I am, right when they smashed the commandments and they built the golden calf. But those five things, are they easily applied to Jesus as well? Of course. Of course. Now, if you ask your, your, your friends uh, who may not follow God, who, uh, who aren't Christians, hey, describe God for me. You think they might use those words? No, they may not. Um, hence, even the uh, people of God had a wrong view of God oftentimes. And so Jesus had to come for them, for us, to reveal the true, the deep, true nature and character of God. So when we look at Jesus, we are looking at God. So true story. As a little boy, I was fascinated by my uh, grandfather and his brothers, my, my great uncles. And they were, they were Germans. They had these barns that were like fortresses. And they had these sides that they hung at the door. These were old world size. If you've ever seen them, you know, they had two handles and you would just swing them. And 
Oh my gosh, those were the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. I begged to play with one of those. And your answer was, never. Hey, never, got, ever, ever. I've got one at my house. <laughs> I'm coming over. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, these were beautiful. They were, the, the handles were, uh, you know, woodworkers like we don't have anymore. I mean, just, but they didn't use them anymore. They just put them up in the bar and they were decoration. So as a kid, I kept thinking, I got to be out there with my grandfather in the barn and help and do that. It was just, oh, it was so exciting. So one day I get to go out with them and it's the day they killed a pig. Oh my gosh. I was maybe six and they're making blood sausage, which if ever you've seen a German do that, it looks like a crime scene. I mean, there's like buckets of blood. All right. That's not what I signed up for. I wanted to hang out with my cool granddad so I could play with a cool scythe. It wasn't what I quite expected. But you learn about life, right? You learn about blood. You learn about... So my argument is the relationship that Israel had with God in the Old Testament was the reality of having a father. It wasn't just the dream of having a father. They actually went out there and they did it. And so there were days in which it was great to have a dad because he took you to get ice cream. But there's also days your dad has to spank you. That's the reality of a relationship. The danger we get into when we say, well, it's just Jesus. We get into this cosmic Jesus that's changing the world and ending evil, and we just get more and more lofty with our descriptions. What Paul tries to do is always tie that to reality. We have to fill both of these tensions. Yes, Jesus is this cosmic force that changes the world, but he was a real person that lived. God has had relationship with us. God has had rules and regulations and things we should and shouldn't do. We don't like that. We want to go to grandma's house where we have ice cream for breakfast. Uh, you, you see what I mean? You, you've got to have this. He is great, but it's grounded in your reality. We can create great things in our mind that never do any good. And you're going to see this tension between the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews always want to do something, and the Greeks always want to think about something. And in order to be who Christ wants us to be, you have to do both. You can't be blindly doing stuff, but you can't just be noodling stuff around in your head and never getting anything done. So Jesus is both. Cosmic, but he was a real person, real place. <clears throat> Feel better for worse. Let's keep going. Can you imagine getting this letter and just reading it out loud? Did everybody get that? Oh, no, let's back up. Um, so Christ is the one through whom God created everything in heaven and on earth. Now, this is a little bit different language here, and Paul is shifting to another thread here. And this is really shocking for Christians sometimes to hear. Um, the Old Testament ends for us uh, with Malachi, and then history goes on. And there was a lot of thinking and praying. There were a lot of spiritually inspired people who wrote and thought specifically about the Messiah. In fact, the topic of a Messiah explodes in those centuries. So, so much of what we start to read at the beginning of the New Testament we're, we're playing catch-up. We thought it ended in the Old Testament, but there's 400 years of a gap there where we missed what they were saying. Images like uh, the, the Lamb of God, 
the Deliverer, the Sons of Light. The Dead Sea Scrolls and some other libraries have helped us fill in the gaps there a great deal. We have to be careful with these documents. They are not Scripture. And there was, there was never a, a stamp where God said, yes, hold on to these. But our problem is readers and writers of the New Testament are very familiar with these works. And so not so much in Paul's case, but specifically with James and Jude and John, they will quote these other sources. They read them. They saw them as authoritative. One of those is the, the, the book of Enoch, which is a, is a very challenging book. Um, it's not hard to find on the Internet. If you're ever curious, I say go read it. It is supposedly the story of Enoch from Genesis where he was taken into heaven and given a tour. But what it ends up doing is showing that the angelic spiritual world is a mess and that angels are just as fundamentally flawed as we are. And they go through all those different kinds of angels. One of the things they're very worried about is they're a group of watchers. These are angels that came to earth in order to help us. But in the process of helping us, they really just made things worse. So they're not quite Satan, but they're certainly angelic beings that are defying God and causing problems. So Paul is probably aware that people are thinking in those terms. He is perhaps himself thinking of that because Jesus is bringing order from everything in heaven and on earth. What does he have to bring in order in heaven? See what I mean? And it goes on. He made up the things we can see and the things we can't see. So what are those? Yes, a Jew would know this. It's, it, it's the world and the world to come. So the place that we live and the place to come. So again, we're getting a very incredible image that Jesus has been, or Christ has been Jesus all along, or been God all along. He is the lens, the model, the perfection that everything needs. Uh, angelic beings, spiritual beings, human beings. So who is above Christ here? Nobody. Nothing. God, but he is God. Right. So Paul is very definitely matching what the Jews would expect, and he's cutting off a lot of the speculation that the Greeks would have, that there would be something greater, a greater principle. We're going to talk about this towards the end of the letter, but there is a a movement called Gnosticism that's very devastating early in the church. As if the church didn't have enough problems with Romans killing us, there were people that combined Christianity with Greek knowledge in a horrible kind of way. And they create this idea that there is a perfect spiritual being. And in Greek, everything spiritual is good. And this is why I kind of rail against this sometimes, as Christians will slip into this today. Spiritual is good, flesh is bad. So when God made himself a human, what did he do? He what? Which made himself partially evil. Because nothing flesh can be good. 
right? The monks go out in the desert and they deny all their flesh, right? They don't eat, they wear clothes because it hurts. I mean, all these denial things, flesh is bad. This is much of this Greek influence. When the Jewish answer is, life's not bad. What you do with life is good. Um, If you have children and you raise them the right way, God says that's actually good. So Paul's trying to cut that Greek thinking off. There is no spiritual version of God that's bigger than Jesus. Jesus has always been. Jesus is God. It doesn't matter that he turned himself into flesh. It doesn't matter that we could touch him. This will really bother a lot of the early Greek authors. When uh, Jesus is running around, resurrected, what does he say to the disciples? Well, sometimes he says, don't touch me. Other times he touches me. And then he does the incredible spiritual act of having breakfast. Remember that? They have fish for breakfast. This bothers them because a spiritually pure person shouldn't be able to touch physical things because they're corrupted. The Greek idea is that there's a perfection and then versions of that have come down. Lower versions are physical. They're imperfect. Paul's saying, nope. Jesus is everything from the spiritual world to this world. Um, He is grounded as a real person, but he's also this cosmic missing piece we've always been looking for. (laughs) Okay, let's go on. Everything has been created through him and for him. He existed before everything began, and he holds all of creation together. So in a sense, Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is Jesus. We can separate out the functions that they have. One is creating, one is redeeming, and and get into very theological conversations. But Paul's presentation to this Greek and Jewish church is that they understand the God of the Old Testament is Jesus. Jesus is the thing you Greeks have always been looking for. There is nothing good beyond him. Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. So again, he has stayed with Christ in in all this this description, so this Messiah idea. Uh, He is the king. Um, Church is a word we invent. uh, Well, the church invents. It's a biblical word, but ecclesia, it's the gathering. It's borrowed from uh, a Jewish concept when they would um, gather together for worship. They would have sort of the core of people to witness the sacrifice or witness what God would do. They had the gathering. So now we are the gathering, the ecclesia, that witnesses the presence of Christ. So it's, it's like God's audience, his kingdom, his people, um, all of that. It, it feels... is. is we started in verse 15 it feels like all this language is is way up in here and and we get to this this uh this uh, conversation about christ being the head of the church which is his body that seems like kind of a metaphorical thing don't you think or is that real like reality uh paul remember when he had his had his encounter with the risen christ you know it was after after christ had resurrected 
had ascended to the Father. That's when Jesus shows up in his life. And remember what he says to him? He says, well, he, called him, he called him by his Jewish name. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Where was Jesus? He descended to the Father. Who was he persecuting? Christians. He was going after them to arrest them, right? So for when, for when Paul makes this statement here about us, he is saying this is ultimate reality. We are the body of Christ. It is no metaphor. It is deep, deep truth. Do you feel like the body of Christ? <laughs> Do you feel like the instrument of this eternal God that's expressing love? I mean, <laughs> if we're the body of Christ, Steve and I, we, we need you. Um, the, I always thought the body of Christ would be taller. I mean, you, you, you just, you have the sense that some people, uh, you know what I mean. It's, this is all you got to work with, Jesus. God help us. But it, it really is his incredible faith in us. And again, some of the Greek philosophers would say, no, 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 no. A pure spiritual logos is not going to have a body. And Paul's saying, no. In order for all this to work, we're not going to open a school of Jesus' thinking. We're going to be a gathering of people who help, who choose, who do. We think and we do. We don't just do one or the other. He is the first of all who arise from the dead. So he is the first in everything. Oh, sorry, I messed that up. Um, He is the first of all who will rise from the dead. He is the first in everything. Okay. We're barely getting through the creation of the world. Now we're doing the end of the world. Was he the first? How does that work? Who's the first person? Adam. So he's not the first person, but he's the first who will rise from the dead. And the tense that Paul puts that in is, is interesting. I don't know if we'll chase that rabbit for a minute. He didn't say he was the first who rose from the dead. He's the first that will rise from the dead. But what does that mean? Okay, sorry. (laughs) Yes. Hold on. Well, microphone, microphone. It it says that he is the beginning. But going back just a bit to he holds all creation together, that's an amazing thought. In the fact that our scientific world, unless it's just happened in the last 30 minutes, they don't know what gives a particle its charge relationship. They don't know, you know, this issue of binding hydrogen and oxygen to make water. Yet, we're told here that he holds it all together. That's an amazing thought. Amen. It, amen. It, it really is. And that's exactly where Paul was trying to take you. That he's God, Jesus is that fundamental to our, our very, very existence. The, the first of this thing, it, 
it, there's a very ancient concept. Um, the Hebrews are, are steeped in it. The, the Egyptians that I've studied are very, very much into it. They have this idea that the first of a thing defines a thing. So the first time I eat an apple, like the very first apple that was eaten is sweet. It tastes good. So what they're telling me is that apples generally taste sweet and good because the way they were originally made, the way originally created is that example. Uh, So by him saying Jesus is the first, it's a new model of creation. It's a new model of humanity. Uh, Paul will expand on this in other sources, and so we know sort of where he was going with this. But Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. Not only is he holding together all of creation, he's becoming this means by which we become new creations, new people. We are becoming not Jews or Greeks, we're becoming Christians. And in this, we have the character of Christ. I mean, Paul will say it in a minute. The spirit of Christ is living within you. So it's like uh, you have a machine that, that is printing things out. And so Jesus changes the code for what it prints out to be human. So now we should be Christ-like in our, our humanness. The first defines the way we are. A lot of times... Ancients will be describing people in general, and the way they do that is just saying the first person was. We, we get confused a lot. Adam and Eve isn't just a discussion about history for a Jew. It's a discussion about human nature. Adam and Eve were a certain way, and that's been repeated every generation, almost every choice humans make. So Paul's trying to say that has been changed through the example of Jesus. Does that make sense? It's good. Yes. Okay. I'm having trouble getting past the uh, uh, first to have risen. How do you explain the three prophets that appeared before Jesus? Yep. So this gets really hard, and it has to do with um, our concepts of time here on earth and time in heaven. And we went through this in the Revelation conversation, so maybe I can visit with you offline, but... Basically, there is no time in heaven. So events that are happening in heaven have already happened. And they don't have a direct connection to here on earth. For example, the the classic example is you already exist in heaven. Even though you exist here in time and you're still making your choices, that event has already occurred in heaven. They're not waiting for you to get to the end of your days. This gets very deep and very complicated. Um, unless you all want to go into this, but um, it's not Wednesday in heaven. The kingdom of God, Jesus reigning, all of us being there already is occurred. That's why they can talk about, in a sense, it's already predestined because it's already happened. It doesn't mean you don't have a choice along the way. It means they exist out of sign in an eternal moment. So the resurrection moment that they're talking about is occurred in heaven. And we've all joined that. Resurrection does not occur in the order that you die. All of the New Testament is very clear it happens at one moment. Everybody is judged by Jesus at the same time. That happens at the end of time or when Jesus returns. It's, it's the end. Uh, or when you die. It's all the same moment. So everybody is judged at the same time. 
you enter an eternity at that moment. You thought Paul was deep. Well, so, you know, you, it, it's a block, right? Um, but it's, it's, it, it can turn into a Grand Canyon. But this is why I think it's so important that we study Scripture the way that we do, that we let them define the terms. Too many times we take theological terms of our own making and we try to force Scripture in it. And what we end up doing is making heaven look like earth. And all of the disciples will warn us, it's not like here. I mean, there are similarities, but it's very different to exist with an eternal God eternally. Um. <laughs> are you sure? Are you sure? <clears throat> so from Paul's perspective, the resurrection is in the future or has already happened. Yeah. Any other questions? <laughs> well, we are at the tip of the iceberg here. We're, we're going to work our way down deep here. Paul is starting very, like Steve said, very ethereal. He's, he's almost being philosophical to a certain degree, but there's specific problems that he's worried about in this church. And again, it's the pull from these either sides. And so I think it'll get a little clearer as we actually get into the arguments that he's, he's trying to head off. And so just to kind of take a deep breath back from this, what Paul is trying to do is to build this case that is there anything greater than Jesus? But there are going to be voices in their community that are going to tell him that there are. Just like... Just like in North American culture, right? Uh, that there's just these invitations, whether direct or indirect, to abandon our faith in Jesus and to put it in something else. And mainly, the temptation is to put our faith in ourselves. That's kind of the North American way, right? And and so that's why he's building this up is to when it, then he starts trying to expose these other voices. They'll already have this uploaded into their mind. Oh, yes, Jesus is the best, right? <laughs> yeah. That's Nacho Libre taught for you. He's the best. And so uh, these other things, it seem like they are really good, and they have this appearance of this amazing spirituality. They're really robbing you of life. And one thing I, th I know Paul is, is desperate for us to do, and the church does not historically do a good job with this, is to keep ourselves rooted in the sort of biblical middle. There is going to be great pressure to make the love God. This idea that Jesus is the pure expression of love. It's unconditional. It's agape love. He doesn't judge anybody. He never says a harsh word. It's all just... Uh, we called it in seminary sloppy agape. You know, I just, I just want to hug the whole world. Okay. Paul would say that, I don't know who you're talking about. Um, there is a long history to who God is, and you can read it right here. The love that you're talking about, the ava, the, 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 I can't speak. Ahava. Ahava um, <laughs> of the Jews is the agape that you're talking about. There is real history, real 
connection to who Jesus is. You can't just let him be this balloon that floats up in the air. Uh, he, is, he is rooted to the Torah. He is rooted to the Jewish experience of God. You can't take him out of that because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus is Yahweh. On the other hand, you can't just take the Old Testament laws and say, I'm going to follow this. I don't need anything new. Just that, that's, that's modern. That's not the answer either. This is the continued development of what God has done, and we've got to get it. We've got to get it right. So we can't make a God up uh, and dismiss the Old Testament. We can't hold on to the Old Testament and dismiss the New Testament. We've got to have both of them together. So let's pray. Father God, we feel like children playing in the mud, trying to understand nuclear fission. We know we don't. We know our words, our history, even the history of our attempt to understand this is flawed. But we do thank you that you try to teach us. You try to stretch us. Not to make you more like us, but to make us more like you. That we can begin to see the elements of creation. We can begin to see in our presence that we are the body of Christ. We are subjects of an incredible kingdom that has the power to make not only our nation, our city, our world better, but creation better. We have, with the presence of your spirit, the ability to make suffering end and make it lead us to a better place. Father God, today, it seems like the tide of evil is just all around us. There are wars and evil acts and criminal acts and abusive kids. And it's, Father, it seems everywhere. Help us tonight to see that you are holding it together. You are still making it possible for us to choose you tonight, to choose to be the holy people, to choose to be the light that is your body here on this earth, shining a path to an eternity that is planned for us that is far different than what we know now. So help us to love as you love. Help us to strive to be holy as we're forgiving and graceful. Teach us to be righteous as we remember to be merciful. Help us, Father, to really fulfill the potential that happened when you became one of us. Help us to become like you. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Good night, everyone. Grace and peace.